in your Bibles this morning. Will you go with me to Luke chapter 16? Luke chapter 16. If you were with us last week, we looked at verses 16 and 17 of Luke 16 last week. And the focus of those two verses is on Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament law and the prophets. And last week I tried to show from verses 16 and 17 that the core issue of Jesus' relationship to the law and the prophets is that he is the fulfillment of them. He is the fulfillment of everything that was written in the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. So he is the culmination of everything that God had said to that point. And Jesus' coming then was a turning point. It was a a crossroads, if you will, in terms of salvation history. Everything before Jesus was leading up to him, everything after Jesus looks back to him. He is the center point of God's program. He's the center point of all of human history. It's, I don't think, an accident that we, the entire world, measures its calendar around the coming of Christ into the world. He is the center point. And because he is the center point, it is his words that are divinely authoritative. His words matter. His words have divine authority. And I mentioned last week that that is one of the reasons why I think these few verses are in the middle of Luke chapter 16. Because Luke chapter 16 as a whole is about our relationship to finances, to the resources that God has blessed us with and how we use them in this world. Whether we use them in a greedy, covetous way through the love of money or whether we use them in a generous way through love and compassion, thereby laying up treasure in heaven. But in the middle of all of that on our relationship to resources and money, you have these three verses in 16 to 18. And I think the reason why they're here is because they deal with the authority of Christ. They deal with the authority of Christ to establish his ethical, moral teachings for his disciples And that's really a core issue in the last several chapters of Luke because we've seen Jesus and the Pharisees enter into several disagreements and confrontations. In fact, in Luke 15, the three parables that Jesus tells there are because of the Pharisees grumbling and complaining and criticizing of Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus confronts that self-righteousness, that hypocrisy of the Pharisees and says, of course I'm eating with tax collectors and sinners because God has sent me to reach them. God has sent me to be a servant to them and to draw them into the fold. And whenever one lost sheep is found, there's rejoicing in heaven. And so Jesus confronted the self-righteousness and hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And he's been doing that for the last several chapters, establishing his authority. And I mentioned last week that there are lots of people who like the words of Jesus. And there are lots of people in our world who look to Jesus as a good teacher. And they like a lot of the things that he says. 
They like him when he says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. They like him when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. But our world as a whole, and really I'm sad to say, even within those who would name the name of Christ within the Christian church, do not take all of Jesus' words seriously. And this morning, I think we come to one of those verses that people in general would have a hard time with. They like the teachings of Jesus, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, but they certainly would not like what Jesus says in verse 18 this morning because it deals with a very sensitive personal issue, and that is the issue of divorce and remarriage. But Jesus' teaching here, the reason why he communicates this is once again to establish the fact that he is the Lord of his kingdom. He is the Lord. He is the one who establishes the moral ethics for his kingdom and for his disciples, his followers. And so this morning we look at this verse that deals with a very important but personal issue. Jesus says in Luke chapter 16, verse 18, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's take a moment and bow and pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we come to your word today and we desire today, Father, to understand the words of Jesus, to understand what he is communicating in these few words that we've just read. But Lord, we also desire as your people as those redeemed by the blood of Christ, those called into the family of God, we desire to not only understand, but to apply and to submit ourselves to the authority of Christ and to his word. And so, Father, I pray that you would teach us and mold us into the image of Christ and help us to come into conformity with his teachings for us as his disciples. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. I really have limited goals this morning because the text that we're looking at in verse 18 involves a difficult subject, the issue of divorce. And one of the reasons why it's difficult is because it involves several passages in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so my goal this morning is not to exhaustively treat the whole issue of divorce and remarriage. I think that would be beyond the scope of what I can do in one message. So my goal is not to cover the whole biblical understanding of that topic. My goal this morning is simply to look at this verse, what Jesus has to say about divorce and remarriage in this passage, and also to relate it to the parallel passage on this same subject in the Gospel of Matthew. And that leads me to another difficulty with this topic and with this passage in particular. And that is because Jesus' words here in Luke 16, verse 18, are somewhat different than what we find in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew, it's worded somewhat differently. And because it's worded differently in Matthew, it gives rise to various views on the subject of divorce and remarriage. 
but we're going to look at those differences here in just a moment. And another reason why this topic is difficult, obviously, is because it's a personal one. And for many people, it involves strong emotions and memories, especially if someone has gone through a divorce in the past. And so my goal this morning is not necessarily to rub salt in anyone's wounds. That's not my goal. My goal is simply to help us understand the words of Jesus and to have the Holy Spirit help us come into conformity to the words of Christ. So Jesus says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, let me just state right off the bat that this is a very strong statement, isn't it? It's a very strong statement. Think about the fact that in the Old Testament law, that the penalty for adultery was death. So adultery was a very serious issue in the Old Testament. In fact, it's a part of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Thou shalt not commit adultery. The penalty in the Old Testament for adultery was death. And so when Jesus says someone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. So this is serious. This particular issue is also, uh, this particular verse is also uh, serious because it is a strong statement because Jesus in this verse does not allow any exceptions, does he? I mean, it's just stated point blank. Anyone who divorces and remarries commits adultery. So it's a very strong statement. At this point, I want to bring in the parallel passage in Matthew and look at it there because I think it will help give us a little bit more understanding about what Jesus is doing here. In Matthew 5:32, which is the parallel to our passage in Luke 16 verse 18 this morning, Jesus says in Matthew 5:32, "But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the language is very similar to verse 18 of Luke 16, except for there is in Matthew 5, a very short exception clause, isn't there? So in Matthew 5:32, Jesus says, except for sexual immorality. And so we have to ask ourselves a couple of questions. One is, what does Jesus mean by this exception statement? And why is it here in Matthew, but not in Luke? And it's also not present in Mark chapter 10, which is another parallel passage to this teaching. So Matthew is the only gospel writer that records this exception clause, except for sexual immorality. The exception that is given sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. And we can probably recognize the root of that, porn, porneia. And in Greek, it often is intended to communicate the idea of any kind of sexual immorality. It's, it's a very broad term. 
And so within that term, under that umbrella of sexual immorality would certainly include adultery after marriage. Now, some have tried to explain the difference between Matthew and Luke by restricting the meaning of porneia here to a very specific sin that had to do with Jewish custom or law. And so I've read one explanation that said that what Jesus is referring to here is any kind of unfaithfulness during a betrothal time, but before the actual marriage, consummation of the marriage. I, I don't take that view. I, I think that's stretching it just a bit to go to that detailed of a, an understanding. I think what Jesus is dealing with in these passages brings into it a, a certain debate that was going on in Jesus' day. There was a debate that was going on in Jesus' day between two different groups, schools, if you will, of rabbis. One was by the name of Hillel, and the other rabbi was Shammai. And these two rabbis, these two teachers, had two different views or understandings of divorce and remarriage. And they're both trying to interpret the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 24. In Deuteronomy 24, it says, if uh, a husband finds some matter of uncleanness in his wife, he may issue her a certificate of divorce. So Hillel and Shammai were trying to interpret that, and they came to different understandings of what Deuteronomy 24 meant. Hillel, the rabbi, was kind of more of a, a liberal interpretation of that passage, and basically said, uh, you could divorce your wife for any reason, pretty much. Uh, even in literature that we've discovered from the, from the teachings of that day, even if she burnt his food. So pretty much anything and any reason that he wanted to, he could divorce his wife. The only restriction was he had to actually officially do it and give her a certificate of divorce. Shammai was more of the conservative interpretation and said, no, what Moses is referring to there is specifically the issue of adultery or sexual immorality. And so Shammai greatly restricted the understanding of, of Deuteronomy 24 and said, no, the only really legitimate reason for divorce would be unfaithfulness, uh, adultery on the part of a spouse. And so what is Jesus doing here then? In fact, in the controversy in, in Matthew 19, in which the Pharisees come to Jesus and present this issue to him, they come to him, in, in essence, to test him. And the Pharisees come and they ask him this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause, for any reason? And you can tell by that question that they're intentionally trying to put Jesus in the middle between this debate between Hillel and Shammai. So which is it? What's, what's the right understanding of Moses in Deuteronomy 24? But it's interesting because what Jesus does in Matthew 19 is he doesn't really side with either one. As Jesus often does, he escapes the dilemma, doesn't he? A lot of times the Pharisees, the scribes, they would come to him and try to catch him on the horns of a dilemma. 
But Jesus would often put the question back on them, show them their hypocrisy or their inconsistency, or often he would take another route and really evade the trap. He does that with this test on the issue of divorce and remarriage in Matthew 19, because Jesus doesn't say, I agree with Hillel or I agree with Shammai. You know what he does? He goes back to Genesis. He goes back to Genesis 2. And he says, what did Moses say? From the beginning, this was not how it was supposed to be. From the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, the man shall leave his wife or leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. No longer two, but one flesh. And so Jesus goes back beyond Deuteronomy all the way back to Genesis 2 before the fall, before sin entered into the world and establishes the original creation intent for marriage, which is one man, one woman for a lifetime. They're one flesh. That's the original creation ideal. So then the Pharisees ask in Matthew 19, verse 7, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? That's in reference to Deuteronomy 24. Notice their words. They asked, why then did Moses command? But then notice Jesus' response, verse 8. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you. Notice the difference in words. So the Pharisees say, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce? Jesus doesn't say that in his response. He says, Moses did not command it, but Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning, going back to Genesis 2. The difference between Hillel and Shammai was Hillel said, you could pretty much divorce for any reason. Shammai said, no, it's only for the case of adultery, unfaithfulness. But here's the thing with Shammai. Shammai said, in the case of adultery or unfaithfulness, you had to divorce. It was commanded. That's where the language of the Pharisees come when they say, why then did Moses command to give an issue of divorce. Jesus is saying, Moses didn't command you. You didn't have to divorce under that circumstance, but Moses permitted you to divorce under that circumstance because of the hardness of your hearts. What does he mean by the hardness of your hearts? Essentially, I think he's referring to sin. Why does divorce happen? Divorce happens because of sin. Can we all agree with that? Divorce happens because of sin. Now, that's a very generic statement. I I left it generic on purpose because that sin that leads to divorce could come from one spouse, could come from both spouses, could come from a combination of things. But whenever there is divorce... There always, always is sin involved somewhere, isn't there? So whenever, whenever someone divorces, there is sin involved somewhere. But Moses permits divorce because of the hardness of hearts. 
But Jesus says it was not this way from the beginning. So I, I understand Jesus in Matthew five thirty two, and also in Matthew 19, when he says, except for sexual immorality, I understand him as providing a legitimate exception for divorce and remarriage. And that is for the case of unfaithfulness or sexual immorality on the part of one of the spouses. But in distinction from Shammai, it is not required to divorce in that situation. It is permitted because there is legitimate grounds, but it is not required. In other words, there is the opportunity for forgiveness and repentance. There is the opportunity for the marriage to stay together and to go on with forgiveness and repentance. And we have ample uh, evidence or uh, examples in the Old Testament of God being that kind of a spouse to his people, Israel. How many times was Israel unfaithful to God? Beyond what we could count. The whole book of Hosea uses that imagery of God as a faithful husband to Israel, an unfaithful spouse, and God forgives. God keeps. God continues to forgive and keep his people. Jesus says, how many, how many times should we forgive our brother or sister? He says, 70 times seven. So there is always the opportunity for forgiveness, for restoration in a marriage, even in the case of unfaithfulness or adultery. But that being said, I think there is a biblical grounds if it, if it comes to the point where restoration where repentance isn't happening, where forgiveness is not an option because the other person isn't repenting and not showing any remorse for it. If, if there, is, there comes a point where that relationship cannot be salvaged, it cannot be saved, I believe the Bible does provide for this exception for a legitimate, a biblical divorce and remarriage. And I think there's one other possible exception without going into great detail. I think there's one other possible exception in 1 Corinthians 7. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul speaks of a couple, husband and wife, where one of the spouses becomes a believer. So you have two spouses, both non-Christians. One of them becomes a Christian. One of them believes in the gospel. Paul's advice in 1 Corinthians 7 is for the believer to stay in the marriage with the unbeliever. As long as the unbeliever is willing to stay in that marriage. But he says there might be an instance in which someone becomes a believer. The other unbelieving spouse leaps, departs, does not want to stay in that marriage. And Paul makes the statement the brother or sister, the Christian, is not under bondage in such cases, which I take to mean that if this person just walks out and leaves, they are then free to remarry. So two possible instances then in Scripture, adultery and desertion or abandonment, I see as providing possible 
of biblical exceptions to what Jesus is saying in Luke 16, 18. So why then does Luke 16, 18 not mention any of those exceptions? I think simply this. Luke 16, 18 is a very abbreviated, summarized teaching of what Jesus gives in fuller detail in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. And that's consistent with what you see in the Gospel of Luke because in Luke 16, verses 16 to 18, he basically summarizes what Matthew takes several chapters to describe. So I see Luke's words of Jesus in Luke 16, 18, where he doesn't mention the exceptions. It's simply a summary statement, whereas Matthew provides the greater detail. So adultery, unfaithfulness, or abandonment, desertion, I see as two biblical exceptions to what Jesus is saying here on if someone divorces and remarries, they're committing adultery. And in fact, this is consistent with the traditional Reformed confessions of faith. For example, the Westminster Confession lists those two exceptions as biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage. Now, that being said, even with those two possible exceptions, let's go back to what Jesus is saying in Luke 16, 18. And look at the seriousness of it. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Here's the thing that I'm concerned with as a pastor is that as a whole, and we see it across churches across our country, this teaching is not being taken seriously. It's not being taken seriously. Yes, there are cases where a legitimate divorce and remarriage can happen according to the Bible. But the vast majority of instances of divorce and remarriage should never happen. They should never happen. And when they do happen, it's sin. Specifically, Jesus says it's adultery. Now, let me ask you a question. How many in this room, you don't have to raise your hands, just answer this for yourself. How many in this room believe that it is wrong, it is forbidden, it is scripturally immoral for two people of the same gender to marry each other? I think the vast majority of us, hopefully all of us in this room, would agree with that statement. Yet, we want the world to take us seriously on that issue. When we say homosexuality is wrong, homosexual marriage is wrong, we want the world to take us seriously on that issue, and yet, according to the statistics, half of Christian marriages end in divorce. So let me just throw this out as a question for pondering. Why should the unbelieving world take us seriously on the issue of marriage if we don't take marriage seriously? We need to be showing the way, don't we, as Christians? We need to not just be preaching the way, we need to be showing the way. 
And the way we show the way is by living faithfully with our spouses for all of our lives. That's the biblical ideal. When you stand at the wedding altar and you say vows to one another, you're not just making promises to another human being, are you? You're making promises to another human being, but you're making those promises to another human being in the sight of God. Marriage is a God-given institution. God created it, didn't he? We hear it almost all every Christian wedding that we go to, they go to Genesis 2. God instituted the institution of marriage and he brought two people together, man and woman. He said, they are now one flesh. God instituted marriage. It's his design. It is not by accident that when the apostle Paul was describing the relationship of husband and wife, He likened it to Christ and the church in Ephesians 5. This is how important this institution is, is that the the relationship of husband and wife, the union of one flesh of husband and wife is intended to portray to the world the eternal relationship of Christ to his church. That's how important this union is. And so when Jesus tells us in Matthew 16, a verse 18, that we should not divorce our spouses, essentially he is teaching us the main idea that as devoted disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to keep the commitments that we make to God and to others. As disciples, devoted disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to keep the commitments that we make to God and to others particularly in this relationship of husband and wife. Now, let me just make a few applications to different categories of people who may be in the audience today. You might be single, never married. This passage does a couple of things teaches a single person a couple of things. One is marriage is serious and should not be entered into lightly. Entering into marriage is a lifelong commitment, covenant before God. Secondly, this passage says to a single person, do not marry someone who has been divorced. At least someone who has been divorced illegitimately, unbiblically aside from those two possible exceptions. What does this say to a married person? This passage says to a married person, stay married, right? Stay married. Do not divorce, do not remarry, do not commit adultery. What does this passage say to someone who has already gone through divorce and remarriage? Again, my my goal is not to rub salt in those wounds. But those who have gone through divorce and remarriage, except for the two exceptions that the Bible provides, have sinned by committing adultery. But is this the unforgivable sin? No, not at all. It's not the unforgivable sin. Confess 
repent, turn from it before God and your sins are forgiven. Go on and live in the relationship with God and with Christ that you have in the gospel. If you've been divorced and remarried, even if it was for illegitimate reasons, but now you're with a a new spouse, stay married. Be faithful to the spouse that you now have. Keep the commitments that you make before God and others. And in so doing, come under the Lordship of Christ. We need to, as Christians, be able to not only give verbal testimony to the gospel, but we need to make the gospel beautiful through our lives. And one of the ways that we make the gospel beautiful and attractive to the world through our lives is by being faithful people, by being loving people, by being forgiving people. And I believe with all my heart that one of the main reasons why divorce and remarriage happens is because of unforgiveness. People do wrongs to each other. It happens. When two people come together and say, I do, even if they're Christians, they're still sinners, aren't they? Two sinners coming together saying, I do. And there are going to be rough spots in that marriage. There are going to be ups and downs. There are going to be fights. There are going to be squabbles. There are going to be times where we irritate each other. But the Bible says that we need to live with grace and compassion and forgiveness and if we apply those principles to our marriage, if you apply the principles of, of Ephesians 5, the end of Ephesians 5, if you apply those to, to a marriage, it will last a lifetime. Be tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. If you apply those principles to marriage, it will last a lifetime. As Christians, my exhortation to you, to us, is to take marriage seriously, to take the words of Jesus seriously, and to display before the world what a godly Christian marriage should look like for all of life. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, I pray that you would take the word of Christ that has been spoken today and that you would implant it deeply in our hearts. Lord, we are reminded today, Father, that we are a sinful people, that we have many faults and failures. We have many sins and transgressions. But, Father, your mercy, your grace is greater than than them all. There is grace for any transgression. There is forgiveness for any sin. Thank you, Father, that the Lord Jesus has stood in our place, taken our debt of sin upon himself, and reconciled us to you through his body, through his dying on the cross and shedding his blood for us. He reconciled us to you by grace, through faith, and now we stand forgiven. We have been forgiven much, Father. Therefore, help us to forgive others. Help us to live in harmony and peace with all, but especially with our own spouses, our own family members. 
Father, you are a faithful covenant-keeping God. May we reflect that character as your children by being faithful covenant-keeping people and keeping the covenants and the commitments that we make before you and before others. Lord, be glorified in us. Be glorified in your church. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to walk in grace and in truth. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.